calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Today, it is just me coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. If you have been following the show, you know we didn't have one last week. Um, you also know that Max the dog was suffering from cancer, and uh, last week was a bad week. On Thursday, we had to say goodbye. So we decided to take a little mental health break, take a few days for ourselves, here, relax, cry, do all of the things that you do. It's very quiet around here now. It's also a little bit sad for podcast reasons because, and this is not a, even a weird transition because this is the absolute truth. This is the kind of conversation that Max loved. You all don't know because you are not here. This is an audio podcast. But I have this library in the back of my house. And uh, when I would do interviews, he would come and hang out on the carpet behind me. Sometimes he would crawl under the desk. And when I was having really animated conversations, he would get super excited. Because he did not realize I was not talking to him. Even though I wasn't looking at him. He always believed the conversation that I was having with authors was about him. And so as I was talking to our guest today, uh, JL Torres, whose book Migrations came out this past June, you're going to hear this is one of those weird interviews that uh, doesn't really follow the format. Uh, it was about halfway through that I was like, oh, shit, we should probably start talking about your life. Because uh, very much like the interview, if you've listened to the, uh, my interview with Sergio uh, Troncoso, this is a similar kind of one. Because JL writes about this experience in between these two worlds, right? He was born in Puerto Rico. He was raised in the South Bronx. And so it, and then he's worked in academia. He has a PhD, has an MFA. Like, he's super fucking interesting. And this was the kind of conversation, and Max was obviously around when I recorded it. But it was particularly hard because as I was prepping to do the editing and record all this last week is when things sort of turned bad 
And I just kept thinking like, I mean, it sucked because I was really excited to get this out. It sucked because I love my dog. He's the best. And grief is strange, right? And so you just start putting these things together. And so JL is forever going to be tied to our last show with Max. Which is not a sad thing. Obviously, losing your dog is sad. Losing anybody is sad. But we are now in the celebration phase of things. And so... I'm glad to get this interview out to you today because it's so fascinating and it's so great. And uh, I also think we, you know, not to be weird, but like, I think we cover a lot of really interesting topics about empathy and, and boys and reading and baseball and living between two worlds and the weirdness of academia and the weirdness of the writing world. It's very reflective this is a very reflective interview, which is exactly where I'm at today. So, you didn't come here to hear about Max and me. You came here to hear about JL. So, he's the author of uh, The Accidental Native, uh, The Family Terrorist and Other Stories, a collection of poetry, and now Migrations, which is his latest book. Uh, he's had stories in journals and magazines, including the North American Review, Denver Quarterly, uh, let's see, Lost America's Review, the anthology Growing Up Latino. He was born in Puerto Rico, like I said, raised in the South Bronx. We're going to talk about that. Uh, he lives in Plattsburgh, uh, where he teaches American literature, U.S. ethnic literatures, and creative writing at the SUNY campus there, although he has just retired. So <laughs> you, you're not going to get all of that, but we had some conversation about leaving academia. And like I said, he got a PhD and an MFA. Like, that's crazy. He got two terminal degrees. And if you are not in academia, just know, like, that's some batshit crazy stuff. Like, that's the sign of somebody who's, like, super driven. Uh, here's my favorite part of his bio. <laughs> and this will tell you a little bit about why I liked him so much and why I think this is a really reflective piece that you're going to listen to. Uh, here's what he says about himself. He has no known hobbies, has never been in prison or any gangs has never had quirky and funky jobs, and is notoriously inept with tools. <laughs> and weirdly enough, we talk a lot about tools, <laughs> but also about how neither one of us can use them. So, sad day in the bunker, happy day in the bunker. I've said on this show many times, I feel like the state of humanity is melancholy, and that is where we are. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It means things matter. Before we get to the interview today, you know the business. The jam comes out every Wednesday, except obviously when my dog dies, and then we can take some time off. Uh, a couple things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends about us. Most important thing you can do, tell your friends about us. That is how people find out about us. And leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you're on Apple, like it's great. You can leave us a written review over there. Or you can go over to Facebook and leave us a review there. People have been leaving reviews there. Both of those things help us out. Uh, over at thewritersjam.com, a couple things you can do. We got the video podcast series coming out every Monday and Friday, and we're getting back to that now. If you're looking for books to read, we got reviews and the bookshop link. Click on that. You can buy books from local and independent bookstores. Got the monthly newsletter. You can support everybody on the Solid Listen Podcast Network by clicking on that Patreon button. Couple bucks a month, commercial-free episodes, all kind of bonus content. Molly and Nicole are cranking stuff out all the time. So you can support us there. 
you know, that's, I don't have a whole lot other than this is a really good interview. This is, uh, I like, I like JL. And we ended up talking about uh, Roberto Clemente and uh, we may be going to a museum together. So that's always a good time when you make a new baseball friend. Thank you guys for stopping by today to spend some time with me. Even though Max isn't here, as Nicole said, Nicole is, works sort of with Molly on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, running everything, said he'll always be part of the show. And in fact, I have a big picture of him over the desk where I'm recording this that I will be posting on the Twitter feed. I appreciate you guys both giving us the grace to not be here last week, but also stopping by. I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you are taking care of yourself and each other. Now, I hope you will sit back and enjoy my conversation with the absolutely wonderful and charming J.L. Torres. I'm in the middle of that continued ongoing conflict in academia and English departments anyway between writing and literature. Oh, yeah. The never-ending, yeah. You know, I have my MFA and I'm a writer and I see myself as a creative writer also. And at the same time, you know, I have my doctorate. So I know, I know that, you know, some, cause you've got an MFA and a doctorate. Yeah. So I, I was in that weird situation where sometimes yeah. my MFA, oh my God, these people, literature. You know, I would be, wait a minute, wait, wait. On one hand, you know, this, but then I would, I would hear the, the people from, from literature, just like, you know, why do we even have an MFA? I mean, like a, a yeah. writing program, you know, you know, oh my God, it was awful. And it's still awful. And I was in right in the middle of it. Yeah, and uh, I did very much a lot what you did. I mean, the the program that we had for for writing, uh, we just we, it was like an option. It was called not even a real, you know, <laughs> BA. <laughs> you know what that goes? But three two courses in writing, and that becomes a you know yeah. writing option. And uh, I have a strong background. Even my doctorate was very much in, in composition theory, and uh, I studied with Ross Winterout. Anybody who knows any anything about composition theory knows that Ross Winterout was like. That's why I went to USC. Yeah. And so I have roots in that, in that kind of, uh, you know, in the conflict that goes with it because, <laughs> you know, the MLA, I mean, CCCC, which is the, is the sort of conference for composition, whatever you call it, they broke away from MLA because they said, you know, they're not, they're not responding to the issues that we're dealing with as, as writing teachers, you know, to, yeah. today. So they broke off and they're, <laughs> you know, that conference is, that's 10 times more people than, than uh, MLA. And we all know the AWP is, <laughs> it's huge, bigger than anything MLA ever does pretty much. So that was a, that was a real problem in my department. You know, I really yeah, had, yeah. so I did not, getting back to the original point, I did not enjoy meetings where sometimes literally I would come out with headaches. I mean, really. Yeah. Oh my God. And you just like, it's, you know, if, if you're a professional writer and like most of us, when we're writing had to have some other gig teaching or something like that's just the, that's the world now Mm -hmm. you get it, you know, like as a professional writer, all like, I don't discriminate against people that self-publish and people that do genre fiction and people that do high, whatever literature, like writing, everything that you do is a skill and a craft and it takes a thing to do that. And so I respect all of that because I cannot do a lot of that, right? Like I've talked to so many screenwriters who became novelists and they're really good novelists because they have a structure from screenwriting and they have a visual language, right? And I'm like, well, that's amazing. That would have never crossed my mind to go get a screenwriting degree to become a novelist. That's what I would do now. 
Yeah. And so when you're in those <laughs> academic things where people are like yelling about stuff, I'm like, we're yelling about shit that doesn't matter. That doesn't I know, I know. matter. You know what it is too, Brad? It's just that we're, the academy, if I could use that word, highfalutin word for basically high, yeah. is that we're struggling with resources. Sure. And we, we're getting squeezed, especially English departments. My yeah. department, when I got my first job at, at SUNY Plattsburgh, there were like 20, close to 20 professors. And now there's eight, like 10. Really? And my line, you know, they put in one of the few lines that they actually applied to you know to uh, to get uh they they said no really all seven lines seven lines that they did give because they really are, are struggling like a lot of the colleges are yeah. they felt they had to go to kind of stem mm -hmm. and that's where we're going so the humanities are, are getting uh, crushed um, shrinking resources shrinking departments and then we have a country <laughs> yeah. not, not appreciate the humanities yeah and they kind of scoff and they look at what's the point of this stuff you know yeah. why, we, why should we study history <laughs> right as it happened and not as we wish it would have happened because you forget history yeah. this is why we have the mess we have you know we had a, a last president who didn't boasted about not reading yeah <laughs> it's you know one of the things that i talk about on this show oh. a lot it's a recurring theme in you may feel this um, in a similar way I do is that fiction is where you develop empathy. I think that's one of the first places that you develop empathy and the, the, the way in which we treat boys and reading say, well, they can't sit still and they just want to play game. Like it's, I've told people if like, when we talked about that with girls in math and science, it was a national emergency because no, that's not right. Right. Like girls can do math and science. There's nothing inherent in a male brain that and so when people talk about that with reading with kids, I'm like, you're raising a generation after generation of young men who are missing out on the first time they get to experience empathy. And then the deeper they go into life, you know, like life gets really hard. If you don't have that wellspring of things to tap into, you see what happens, right? Like you see a world in which there is no empathy driven by id men. I, you know what, you, you, you made three fabulous points. And I agree. First of all, this idea of empathy, it's, this is proven by MRIs. Yeah, right. by, you know, yeah. Scientifically, we know that narrative and fiction or narrative, but you know, fiction narrative in particular yeah. really brings out empathetic ties in, in the parts of your brain where you go, wow, you know, and, and you feel something. So they're missing on that out. And secondly, there was this recent, recently, just like this week, a national news about how there are more women now going to college than yeah. men. And now, you know, I see that from particular angles, you know, a lot of women yeah. would say, well, so, you know what I mean? For the longest time, men were going and, sure. and no one was saying about women, hey, how come they're not, yeah. <laughs> women, women need to go to college yeah. or whatever. Uh, I see that point, but at the same time, you know, it's about really having also men be educated uh, yeah. so they don't become uh, troglodytes. I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, this is, and then another thing is look at the, the right wing movement that's, that's developing in this country. And I read articles, I think it was with Atlantic, is how that particular group, and a lot of them are men, lack empathy. Yeah. They don't seem to understand or worry about others. No, and they that, don't know how to embody somebody else's story. Right. And that, that, and that filters into racist, you know, feelings because they don't care. You know, they don't see misogyny, people. everything. They don't see the other as human. Right. So you're right. There's a serious problem going on there. And um, even in English classes, when I would teach majors, I had a student, <laughs> Brad, I had a student 
who was an English major, tell me outright, I don't like to read. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it always amazes me when writers, when I hear that, everyone you hear oh. from a writer, like, I don't read a whole lot. I'm like, mm. oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm, you're going to have a hard time because yeah. uh, I can teach you certain things, but you know, you learn so much on your own by yeah. reading. It's, it's so fascinating to me because the, you know, it, it finally dawned on me over the years what the answer is when people would come up to me and be like, am I a writer? And you know, I was always like, well, if you're asking me that, I can't, I can't tell you that answer. I don't know. But now I know the answer is how much do you read? Yes. Like that's the determiner of if you're going to be a writer or not. If you read a lot, you got a pretty good shot of being a writer. Right. In fact, you know, this is another, but this is another thing. So like a lot of my colleagues don't seem to understand certain things about the, the population that we're serving today. Yeah. Because we all, I mean, it's, it, it, you're in a vacuum. Every English professor I've never met loves reading, <laughs> loves books, loves yeah. literature. I mean, you know, and it, it's like a given for them. It's not everybody feels the same way as we do. You know, yeah. and some kids do like to read, but they don't want to, you know, feel like they have to go and pursue like, you know, doctorate. Yeah. Want to do something because they like to read and write. And then we have to understand that and really be serious about, I do believe that if you're going to spend $25,000, $30,000 in years, we should be able to at least guide students to, and channel them to certain paths of, yeah. of, of, work or employment yeah you know let's face it so that that that's a reality they don't kind of want to deal with that because how can they not love literature? i mean like because they're not you and me yeah you know my uncle was taking apart cars when he was like nine years old and i've told people this you know one of the worst things that happened in the obama presidency and there were some things that i didn't love but tying junior colleges to four-year programs and getting rid of that sort of training ground where people who worked with their hands could go do fulfilling work and instead say look that two years you need to then go to college to get a whatever degree my uncle is a mechanic he was born a mechanic that is and it's right. insulting to me to believe that you can't have a rich and fulfilling life as someone that creates something with their hand. Is he going to read War and Peace? Probably not, but I know there's stuff he does read, right? Like, and so right. find like that eliminate, like that, I think, I don't know if that's exactly what you were saying, but like, this has always been like, as a poor kid from Appalachia, I'm like, you can't say if you don't read this book, you don't love to read because that's not true, right? right. Like it's not true. And it privileges right. one kind of thing over another and right. assumes that you can't Absolutely. develop empathy and enjoyment Absolutely. and all those rich things. Right. Look, listen, I, I really, um, I, you know how I really got into reading by reading classics illustrated. Uh, yeah. You know, my, my brother kept a whole bunch of those and I was uh, growing up, I would read those and I would look at the store in the graphics and stuff and, and read it. And then, and then I started, I started growing, just like reading. I, I was an early reader. I mean, I loved reading. And so, but that's really what I got into reading. Yeah. It was, then when I realized that these were actual books, then I said, I like to read these books. Yeah. So, so, you know, where you start doesn't matter. I think, you know, let's face it, you know, I, I like President Obama to make things soon. I don't disagree with also with some yeah. things either. And certainly he was a bit of an elitist and he went to Harvard. He went to all these schools. Yeah. And has this as you know i went i went to columbia and i went to vasa yeah. college i went to I, berkeley like i'm the same <laughs> you know what i mean but but we, we we you know you from i came from the south bronx you know yeah. I, I know the, the yeah. history of so i we, we both know that we, yeah. we kind of know working class people and and it doesn't take away their dignity and whatever my, look i have a um uh my brother-in-law is an electrician mm -hmm. did not go to college you know, I think maybe he decided to do two years, but he did not learn electrician in college. Yeah. You know? uh, or maybe he didn't actually, but he did get his, he studied hard, man, to get yeah. his, 
you know, to be a certified electrician. Yeah, I mean, because that's the real deal. Like, and I probably kill yourself with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I hire electricians because I can't figure out how to do any of it. And he, you know, he, and I'm not ashamed to say this man earns more than I do as as a professor. And he, because he works hard and he works with his hands. And that's, you know, that is beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful to be able to work with your hands and to do something that, that actually requires also some skill. Yeah. And smarts because he's not dumb. My, yeah, my, that's what I mean, right? Like there is there is this there is this belief that somehow trades and craftsmen, craftspeople could not have rich and fulfilling inner lives, right? Like that they had to get these other things. And I'm like, there's many ways in the same way there's many kinds of writers, there's many ways for people to get into the kinds of things and stories that they like. It doesn't just have to be you and I where we're like, let's read the, you know, the the National Book Award finalist books every year. Like, okay, but that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, no, right, and I'm increasing some of these students that come in that want to be writers. Are are what do they love? They love fantasy. Yeah, they read all the Harry Potter books, you know, and and uh, they can name all these fantasy writers and all these different uh, categories <laughs> of fairies and yeah, and I'm 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 like amazed. Now I had a colleague that left, you know, our department, but you know, I was just shocked when other students would would tell me, well, you know, Professor so and so. Um, he says, I, I can't help you with that. I, I hate that, that, yeah. that kind of writing. And so, and I said, wow, I mean, you know, what I would tell them is I don't write that. Yeah. That's not what I write, but I, I'll help you as much as I can. You teach me something about this, but because the bottom line is good writing is good writing. I don't yeah. care it's fantasy and I've read science fiction, you know, and that's why I, of all the genres, I like science fiction more. I've, I've read Stephen King and some of his, yeah. Stephen a great writer man there's no yeah. doubt he's a great writer that he chooses to write that's so what and anyway the way now that academia is going and scholarship i'm sure someone has written a dissertation on him you know what i mean yeah oh 100 so so what's the big deal eventually we're gonna we're gonna canonize these people and we're gonna yeah. say they're writers and they've been writing something you're telling me that the, the, the stan and other other stories don't aren't, aren't significant in many yeah. in certain ways thematically and and what they're writing about in terms yeah. of their work. so you know i always had to struggle with these uh purists always you know so they they sort of are kind of look down you yeah know, down on 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 that kind of writing whatever and that good writing some of that's the academy though right like you have to have a thing of scholarship and you have to be an expert in it to get promoted like it it feeds that it feeds the worst parts of who you are. And part of the reason that I needed to leave was for my own, like I had a, I got anxiety and stuff and I just, I couldn't, I had a breakdown and I couldn't, I needed to not be in that environment anymore, but I have enjoyed writing and reading so much more outside of it now because I get to be inclusive in it and not trying to build a career out of it. Like, I'm not trying to like, well, I'm an expert in this because what I'm an expert in is digging writers. You do a great job. You do a great job at it. You're good at it. So that, you know, I, honestly, you know, one of the things, one of the joys that I, when people also ask me in my college, whatever, and, and I say, you know what, I'm going to look forward, I'm going to look forward to reading whatever the freak I want. Yeah. And, and not yeah. because I have to read certain things. Not that I don't enjoy those things too. I do to a certain point. I mean, and some things I just don't. I mean, I don't like Milton. Nobody can make me love Milton. I can understand, I can understand <laughs> why he's important. I can tell you why he's important. Yeah. And I'm not going to spend my time reading john milton okay yeah all right and shakespeare's different yeah but that's a different thing but you know i mean like no i know i can read whatever the hell i want and i can you know and, and delve into things that i normally wouldn't and at my own pace and not 
not feel like, oh, I have to teach this. Oh, yeah. This is an important book for my yeah. students. You know, I need to sit down and read these 400 pages in a week and make notes and <sighs> no, figure out that anymore, though. You can't you cannot assign that anymore to students because they I complain. Know. This is another the, the readership, even, you know, and that that, you know, publishing inside out. right? Yeah. So you, but I mean, we have a real issue. And I, I would love to ask you about this because as, as a writer myself and as a writer, a BIPOC writer, yeah. you know, um, I, I, I really feel that it's a whole different issue for some of us, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, especially if you write, you know, there's a lot of YA writers now or Latina <laughs> in particular, you know, yeah. And so a lot, and a lot of, of there's a lot of black women that are taking up the YA, particularly the YA fantasy also, world. Like that's 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 true. A, that's true. And that and there's a lot of reasons for it. And yeah, you know, it's commercial. They yeah. Will always make more money than I do, for sure, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I consider myself a very writer. You know, yeah, I, I write, you know, I don't every topic is different. I don't have certain expectations that readers want with when it comes to genre, you know, when you read a science fiction book, you expect certain things, right? you know, with fantasy, certain things, certain platform, whatever, you know, a future building world, all these things. I don't have to, I, but everything is different. Therefore, it's more challenging that would for me anyway. But at the same time, you know, it's like, who is my audience? Is a question I was asked because, um, you know, uh, I write stuff that deals with Puerto Ricans mainly a lot. Not that I'm going to always do that, but but that's what I, that I feel that's the need that I, urgency that I have. So where's my audience? And that's really a problem because I'm never going to sell that many books. I know I'm not, but I still feel that I have to sort of, you know, sort of develop and, and sort of nurture yeah. a certain experience yeah. and write an experience that has it's not really been, you know, written much about. We do have writers, thank, thank God for Martin Espada, you know, yeah. and, Perdomo and all these, you know, Esmeralda Santiago, but there's a tradition there and, and we need to, to also kind of develop other spaces in, yeah. in that. In that. Uh, and then, and there's certainly, well, Esmeralda certainly sold more books than I, I ever will, <clears throat> because I also like to be edgy and I'm politically kind of <laughs> minded. <laughs> and I know I'm writing certain things that people don't like to hear. So that becomes a real problem for me, Brad. I don't yeah. know what, what I'm going to do, but. <laughs> you know, I just interviewed Sergio Troncoso and we. Had I love a, his work. Yeah, I, it, I really do. I mean, there's an intersection, right? At least thematically yes. in, the, in the in the sort of in between stories that you're telling. And like this was a large discussion that we had because mm-hmm. um, I like you, like we have there's a there's a fair amount of Venn diagram crossover of the sort of stuff. Right. And then there's the sort of 30 percent outside of that that's different but like i get that living between two worlds things and like and particularly as um particularly writing about a non-white experience mm-hmm. that's really hard in this time and place right like you said like and he was saying the same thing like i don't know how to get people to come to these stories because there is this wall in this country true where people are like and particularly like and people and not that it only men would understand this, but like that white men should be like should be reading these books and going, oh, shit, like mm-hmm. there is a giant crossover between growing right. up poor and rural in this country and right. growing up as a person of color. What regardless right. of your wealth, there is right. a outsiderness Absolutely. to that. Right. That, yeah. Um, yeah. Like you have to be open they, to. Yeah. Right. And so, like, I get the, I mean, I get the problem that you have. Right. Yeah. It's like how the fuck do you overcome 400 years of America. Right. That's exactly it. That, that, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, that, that's exactly and now it. it's your, you got to figure that out. Right. And, and now the, the difference is that now we really have a, a, an opportunity to actually tell those stories. Yeah. Before we were, you know, 
it was pretty close. Now they find it interesting because now there's actually they can make money off. Yeah. So now, you know, certain yeah. things. This is why YA. I have a thing about YA too because I really seriously think, you know, I might be crucified for this, but I really seriously think for the most part, the reading levels of most Americans today is at that YA level. Well, I'm not I mean, kidding. I'm not kidding. When I, I was I think, when I was a teacher, I was a my my degree, my my undergraduate was was teaching secondary school, and when the '90s, when I was going through education, like they said, the average reading age for most Americans is between eighth and ninth grade. Like that's. And I suspect it's probably still around it. Not that people can't yeah. read other stuff, but like yeah. they just don't practice that skill and craft. It's right. not a exactly. thing that they hone as they go through life. And so it kind of stays at a level. Right. Right. So that's, I think that that's it. That's a big market there because yeah. it's pretty much, you know, what people don't want to be challenged stylistically, you know, and I had always had a hard time teaching Toni Morrison because students just the oh, writing yeah. is very, very challenging. Yeah. The style. It's, it's and, interesting and, though because YA you can it's it is the time when everything comes together and you're sort of cooking as a human, and so you can actually deal with a lot of stuff that I think, right. it, you know, it's a little bit like I was talking to um, uh, South South African writer. We were talking about Colson Whitehead and about like why mm. the black experience has to be put into magic realism, right? It's because white people can separate themselves out and go, oh, this is not really what happened, right? Instead of being like, oh shit, this is like what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, of course, it will be. I, I just love the uh, the comments on, on Goodreads and, and and all these other. Like, this isn't about the Underground Railroad. <laughs> I'm not even gonna uh, lie. I'm a fairly educated person. I don't read about books before I read them, and I was like, "The fuck is happening in this book?" And it took me like it was like yeah. I don't know, fifty pages where I'm like, "This is magic realism. This this is yeah. not a real book." I loved it. I love yeah. it. It's sort of like a, it has elements of an alternate universe. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this not didn't happen this way, but what if it, if you know this right. is a good question, what if? And I, I went with it right immediately. I mean, I just I just I I, I you know because magical realism is 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 a Latin American thing, right? Yeah. And I just got it immediately. I says, wow, this guy's really and that's what I loved about the book. And this is, you know, if you're a, a BIPOC writer, you know, you really need to kind uh, in fact just today, um, they have a, a wonderful website. I think her name is Gabriela uh, Pereira has a wonderful uh, website uh, called, I don't know if it's a podcast too, but it's called uh, Do Do It, what is it? Do your Do It Yourself uh -huh. MFA. Yeah. DIY MFA. And it's really to help, <laughs> which I love, um, you know, help people who maybe not have the money or the time or whatever. And she puts all these resources so that people can learn uh, the ins and outs of writing. That's great. That so she asked me to write something because I think she is going to have a podcast with me. And she, you know, I wrote something today. It just came out today. And it's a dispatch <laughs> from the hallway, you know, uh, advice uh, for committed BIPOC writers. And so I give sort of, you know, my background and all this other stuff about what's going on with writing with us. Yeah. Why is it <laughs> and I, and I kind of gave advice, you know, this yeah. is what I, you know, whatever and i just think that one of the hardest things is finding material and that just like colson white has done you need to be fresh because there's so many tropes out there yeah. that are, are like toxic but are old you yeah. know and and so in my collection certainly i try to do that i'm trying yeah. to to challenge myself and push myself to do things differently so i have sort of magical realism in there because i still love it i think yeah. it's, it's wonderful one of my first stories was was had those elements 
and um, also to take old tropes, like, you know, the whole thing about gangs and kind of just do it differently, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. maybe from the perspective of the people you yeah. know, who not, not were in gangs and say, yeah, that was bad. But then life goes on, right? It's not just about if we can just get out of it, it'll be wonderful. And it, is, it isn't always. So this kind of uh, uh, challenge uh, of, yeah. of tropes that are out there. But finding material is certainly one of the hardest things that I, I find and to, 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 to move it forward, you know, to a different yeah. level. No, I feel that um, even with myself, like, you know, I do a lot of writing about Appalachia and I have this book that has been done. That's not done that I'm sort of going back over because I don't love it because I'm sure you've experienced it. There's something in it that's not working for me and I don't yeah. know what it is. That's and I, piece. <laughs> yeah, and I, I suspect it is because I'm beholden to like I did all this reading this Appalachia reading. And then J.D. Vance's book came out and people tried to get me to fight with him about shit. And I was just like, I'm too in this this soup right now. And I can't pull myself out to figure out what I want to say. I'm stuck listening to what everybody else is saying and trying to find out where I fit into that, which is a terrible way to write. Right. Like that's just the yeah, yeah. for me, that's a terrible way to write. Like it is not like I can't try to fit in. I have to figure out what my story is and why I want to tell this story. That's it, man. You got to go back to just the story. Yeah. So it's it's got to be a good story. I mean, people yeah. have to want to read it from the beginning to end. And then you start with initial ideas and whatever. You can't overthink writing. I, really I, believe that. I mean, you so can. You can, but <laughs> yeah. you shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make for good writing. I, no. I don't. And I, I you know, um, uh, Butler's book. Uh, what's his name? Um, oh, my God. I forget his name. But something uh, from the wind, from the deep white heat or something, something like that. Um, Robert, was it Robert? Butler is it? Oh, you, you, I'm sure you know who this guy is. And um, he's one of Pulitzer and everything. But basically his idea is that you're best at, at writing fiction in particular when you are in sort of a zone. Yeah. Like, like he mentions athletes, you know? And I, I mean, I used to pitch when I was in, in um, you know. Shortstop. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, you know, like when you're hitting, but when you're pitching, you're in a zone. And yeah. Any athlete, you don't even hear anything nothing really just concentrating your and i think that that's a good metaphor for writing when you're in that zone and you let yourself go and you almost enter an unconscious world that where all those ideas and visions and visuals and all kinds of things um i.e the imagination and uh that's sometimes when your writing is best so you cannot be too percent analytical which is what you would i think we're doing and yeah. when because i've been there too and it really is did you start boy and this is another thing too i really Honestly, if I could do it again, I would not have gotten a doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Seven, six, seven years of my life where I could have, how many books would I have written by then? I, yeah. like, I just did, could not write anything long. And you get into that little realm. So one yeah. of the things that you were saying, like I grew up in an oral culture. Like I, I literally grew up with, with, I mean, we camped and I would sit around the campfire. Like it's that bullshit thing that you hear. And I'm like, that was my life on the porch, in the backyard, around a campfire. And I learned stories orally. And so when I'm writing, and I'm a nonfiction writer, I tell people I am transcribing the movie in my head. I am not writing. When I think, that's when nothing works. Absolutely. But when I just let the movie go and I'm like, Brad, just talk. Yes. Like, that's how you tell a story. That's how your people tell a story. That's how they've been doing it for 400 years, 500 years. Like, that's what we do. That's right. <laughs> and, and yeah, really. And if your background happens to be Irish, you're more so. I really believe Irish, you know, that's like we have so many great Irish American writers and just, you know, you, you know, we're super English. Yeah. I mean, they're just love stories. And I think, yeah. you know, I don't know, but, you know, I've always, 
I have a, a, a colleague and, and friend of mine who is, uh, I, you know, I was from like Ireland, you know, and he yeah. came here and he's a professor of history and stuff. And, and we would talk in my, we have some, I think Puerto Rican, I mean, maybe it's the insular thing because we're both, you know, I mean, Ireland is a bigger island, but, but there's something about living in an island. Yeah. That I don't know if makes for people, maybe they, because the road ends you know, always yeah. somewhere, right? And you, beyond that, where do you go? And maybe that insular kind of mind, mindset kind of leads to, more inward looking and therefore more imagination. Yeah. I mean, I feel that way about the mountains, right? Like the mountain, like where I lived and where my family lived in Kentucky, they've lived there for, they founded the place. Mm -hmm. Literally, there's so much literature. It is one of the poorest places in this country. There's been a hundred year study on it called the road to poverty. And it's about how there were no roads and railroads in and out of that place. And so the fortunes declined after the salt mining went away to the point where they just left this place in the mountains. And I'm like, yeah, like when you're on your own and you know nobody's coming, like you become a certain way. And some of right. that is both reflective right. and also not fatalistic, but like you just sort of know your lot in life. I know. And that is insular in itself. Yeah. It's an insular yeah, kind of thing. And then you depend on each other and, you know, it's and you build a culture that's very much in and not inward looking and not outward looking. I mean, I, yeah, I, th- I think there's something to that. And um, yeah, Puerto Ricans love to tell stories too, man. We're, we're just, um, <laughs> we like to stretch the truth a little bit, you know, when we tell stories. That's what my wife says, you're always inventing things, you know? I yeah. mean, that's not the way, I mean, when I'm kind of retelling and narrating something that happened, you yeah. know? And I'm always, I'm there, always interested in how I'm going to end the story. <laughs> she's like, that's not exactly how it happens. You're always inventing things. Yeah, maybe embellish. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, look, man, like, it's look, it's a story. Like, it's gonna end the way it's gonna end, and uh, we should all be excited to not know what's about to happen next. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back because we we gone way off the rails, and we're gonna start. We're gonna we're gonna start where you were born, and we're gonna walk through some of your life. Okay. You can shop from anywhere, doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. All right. So we're back. Uh, we just had an amazing conversation about The Wire and Breaking Bad. Um, so I, but I want to go back to the beginning because you and I, I think, could talk about this writing stuff all day long. Uh, uh, where are you from? Where, where were you born? 
Well, I was born in, in Calle, Puerto Rico, which is uh, one of the 78 towns in Puerto Rico and sort of the central part of the island, which is higher up and more elevated. So, so um, it's nice and cool up there. It never gets as hot as other places. And um, yeah, so I was born there and then left when I was five and a half, maybe. Oh, so like you just, you had some memories of being there and then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some very vivid memories, a lot of rain. And one of the things I will never forget is the rain falling because, you know, when I was living there still, they had like these tin roofs. Yeah. So it would be the, the pit of patter of this rain. I, it just put me to sleep as a, as a kid. Yeah. And the yeah. mud, it was a lot of mud. I remember a lot of mud. Did, did you have brothers and sisters or was it just you? No, I have um, I have several half brothers and sisters. I don't have any full. Me and you both. And this is a lot about <laughs> my dad, uh, who <laughs> from that side I have several, and some that I probably don't even know. Yeah. Right? It's that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I have several on that side. And then on my mother's side, uh, I have two a brother, uh, an older brother and older sister. Did you grow up around them or were you? Were yeah, you... more more to my mother's, uh, uh, you know, my, my two, my brother and my <clears throat> sister on my mother's side. And then I've met, I've met my other siblings, uh, you know, not big, not of a big connection there. Yeah, I would say so. For, it's for hard. Me. I mean, like I have, uh, I you know, my half sister, we found out about her, I think when I was 17 or 18. And like now as adults, we're trying to get closer but you know it's it's weird because my half sister and my full sister look exactly they're identical like when, oh. when people see the three of us together they think i'm the the half <laughs> it's well, always yeah weird. but you uh, yeah they're like I, maybe the eyes and i'm like yeah okay welcome to the fucking hillbilly family here we go you know like uh so were you guys close growing up or like uh, well, guys, there's a whole story. I mean, I really, this is the thing too. Maybe we you know my sense of belonging has something to do with the fact that I have, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine, have siblings anyway, and I'm not connected to any of them, you know? Yeah. Uh, my brother was five years, you know, my elder. So I, you know, he was into his own little world and I was yeah. into my own world. Five years is hard. My sister's five years older than yeah. me. We, we always yeah. say we were brought up two only children in the same house. That's how it felt for me. And, yeah. and then my sister kind of stayed with her paternal uh, grandmother, you know, and there's a whole story behind that. Yeah. Uh, and she kind of grew up there in Puerto Rico. So she would come visit my mom during, um, you know, summer breaks and stuff. And, uh, you know, my parents being, you know, working class people, she came to put her to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry for her so much, you know, I mean, she and she has still a lot of resentment over that yeah but yeah. um yeah i'm closer to them than certainly my other um siblings you know and then you came to new york is that where you guys moved to yeah and my mother was trying to make you know make things work with my dad and he already had come here and, and you know he was a, a mail carrier but he was sort of uh you know jack of all trades master of none i mean he did yeah. he was a poet in his own right he was writing and he, i did i know this and Old, as I got older, I met I met up with this man again, and we sat around talking about Whitman, and that was one of the best things I ever did with my 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 real dad, you know, and and I was like, man, this guy is smart, you know, so maybe this smart, maybe my smarts I came from him because on my father's side, all my siblings are there. One is a doctor and a lawyer. Right? Holy shit! Yeah, that's that, a, that's all, an, that's take, aggressive. That's aggressive. Yeah, we we you know, you, come on, dude. Yeah, you we know? don't need that in our lives. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So and he's the oldest in that family. And then there was a dietitian and the other one was a, a school teacher and, you know, and the other one was a lawyer too. So, I mean, all that, wow. that side is really, yeah. And so I, um, 
that that's my my family background and uh she was trying to get back to with my dad and she she gave it one last try and didn't work out again because the guy was just a philander he just he was just yeah that's the way he was and so uh she so then you guys while. were here with your mom yeah alone and she she got us through that and then she was working at factories and uh her whole wow. life pretty much. and then she met my stepfather and then they uh they were married and um she couldn't have no other children which is a whole different story uh and so that was my life living in the south bronx for a good portion of that of that time it's really interesting because i was just uh as we were talking before i bell hooks is from right down by where my family's from and she wrote this book called belonging and it's sort of about oh. both the sort of racism and misogyny of being in these small places, but how that's different than the racism and misogyny she felt when she went to Stanford, right? Like one is very personal and one is impersonal. And you would think the impersonal would be less, but she's like, it actually sometimes hurt worse because now there's just rando strangers that are telling you, you don't belong. Right. And then, so you, as you were saying this, and as we were just reflecting on like growing up in Appalachia, like there is this sense when you come from brokenness of always being outside, never feeling like you have footing. I, I agree with that completely. Maybe that is my, <clears throat> you know, what drives my sense of trying to belong somewhere because I've never felt anywhere, you know, yeah. and my family structure was always so loose and not really, really tight. Uh, so even though I, I, you know, it was a nuclear home. I mean, my, my stepfather was a great guy. I mean, he was a great dad to me. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, in fact, I partly dedicated this last book to him because he was my real dad. Really. Yeah. He was there for me. Yeah. And he, but he was a strict guy. He was very <laughs> aloof. You know, he was this army guy. You know, he went to two wars, you know, the Korean and, yeah. and World War II. It's like, oh my God, this poor man, how he survived, I don't know. And, and he how he came out ways. decent is he had his set ways too. He's very rigid, you know. I mean, it, it was sort of like this is a guy that used to put his socks to dry in like hangers. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that makes sense, like who your mom came from, that the next person is gonna yeah. be a, you're not doing that shit again. Oh, yeah, no, he was there. Yeah, there's no doubt yeah. about it. that's what she wanted. She wanted somebody who would yeah. be there for, you know, and he was, you know, until his dying days. Yeah. Um, so he was a, a, a great influence in my life in that way because he also taught me to be disciplined. Sure. And so what were you like as a kid? Because I got to think, I mean, just talking to you for a little bit, like you got a little rascal in you. <laughs> now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm uh, guessing you got into some trouble. I No, you know what? This is interesting. I was a really good kid. Yeah. Well, you can I be really a good was. kid and still get into trouble. Well, you know, I, 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 I used to kind of run off a little bit. And I do remember this is the one time that I do remember, you know, my, my stepfather, he slapped me. He slapped me. Because I was I was 15, and you know how that goes. I do. You're 15, and you're hanging out. <laughs> I may have been a rascal. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you're smoking a little pot here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. that was, you know, but it wasn't like I was in a, in a gang or anything. No, or I, no, I meant exactly what you said, which yeah, is like, no, well, I, Dad I wants me to do this stuff, but, like, I'm going to yeah. stay here with my friends and smoke a little weed for a I bit. I tested the waters and yeah. whatever, and I, I, you know, and I came home one day. In fact, they followed me, my mother and him, you know, they followed me one time to find out what I was doing. Yeah. And I saw them, and I said, oh, shit. You know, and it's not so much. It's now I'm with my friends, man. Yeah. This is like embarrassing. Yeah. You know, and they, they, you know, they just wanted to see what are you doing, and uh, you know, who are you yeah. hanging out with, you know. And this, oh my jeez. So, um, my dad once tracked late. me down in a car. Like it, he drove. I was like forty minutes away, and he tracked. Me. I don't know how he did it. Four cell phones. I don't know how he did it. Pulled me out of that house and took my ass home. 
<laughs> so yeah, when I got home a little later than I should have, he, you know, he was he told me, and I I must have said something sass, you know, and he just slapped me, and I was like, ho, <laughs> yeah, kind of woke me up, you know. And I said, damn, you know, so, um, yeah. I mean, it's it. funny. It's not funny, but like that. It isn't know. funny. And, you know, it, but you know, my time. mother was kind of strict too. My mother was strict. They were both, you know, working class people that had no yep. time for nonsense. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, I think that uh, if you come from that kind of household that like there is, and you know, I always tell people you explain, you don't excuse. Like we shouldn't be slapping the shit out of our kids. But yeah. I also understand the stress of I'm old now. I understand the stress of America. I can't imagine having kids working class, struggling to survive. And now I got to deal with this bullshit. Like, you know how somebody can have a bad moment. Absolutely. And on top of living in the South Bronx. Yeah. I mean, where if anybody knows it about the South Bronx, this was a time of gangs. And I had friends that were in gangs. Sure. And who were, you know, um, you know, drug addiction all over, all, all over the place. I mean, the neighborhood is deteriorating because we know now I know that it was yeah. redlined, you know, oh, yeah. purposely yeah. sort of like, you yeah. don't want to invest anything in this, in this neighborhood yeah, uh, for, for racist reasons. But anyway, people who were, they were entrepreneurial there. There were people yeah. who could run businesses. They just wouldn't get loans. Yeah. So that kind of thing. And they didn't, my parents didn't know, all they know is, you know, we don't want Jose Luis, you know, yeah. Well, I used to call me Luisito. We don't want him in, pro- in getting involved in that. Because, you know, they didn't know that I was smart. I was a good student. I was always a good student. Yeah. You know, all throughout. And they didn't want problems with me. They just wanted me to get through high school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when when I, they found out that I was going to go to college, they were like, you know, like, they were like, they didn't know what to say because they, they didn't go to college. Yeah. No, it's just that, you know, they just get a job. They just, you know, kind of. How did you, just, how did you figure out you wanted to go to college? I don't know, man, Brad, if I knew, I don't know. I've I know, always, right? I don't know. I've had this thing. Me too. You know, that I just wanted better. I just, I just felt, maybe from my reading, you know, I would read about people. Oh, 100%. I, you know? My dad filled out my college application. I was a baseball player and I had some offers, but like I got hurt and didn't really want to. He literally filled out my application and like I got accepted and was like, the fuck is this? It wow. was never... That was just not a thing I thought I was going to do, but I also knew I couldn't stay in my town. And I suspect you had it. So I was like, if I stay here, yeah. I'm going to die. Like this, I, mean, I, know, I know what I my have, life is going to yeah. be. I had friends that, you know, were, were just absolutely became, you know, addicted to stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't want that. I didn't want that for me. I said like, you know, wow, I felt horrible for them. I really did. It was painful to see friends like that. And that was, if that's not enough of a lesson, gee, what, you know, I mean, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. You've seen it firsthand. And this could happen to me too. Yeah. And I had a little, you know, in fact, I had friends that told me, man, you, you stay in school, man. You know I mean? That's what they would tell me. I, my friends said the same yeah. thing. As you say, you know, you know, you, you can make it out there. I mean, it's like, it was that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, how can you take somebody say that to you and not take it literally seriously? I carried that burden with me for 20 years where everything I did, I thought I was doing because my friends had told me like, you got to go do this. Right. And it's just like, you know, it took me a lot of therapy to get to a point where I'm like, that's mm-hmm. not. I can't carry that burden. Like I have to do what I need to do because, but I right. mean, that shit was with me every time I wanted to quit. I'm like, ah. yeah. Well, I mean, yes, I, I don't know, but I'm sure with you too. Like, this is a lesson that, and we're both, I think, because we come from these backgrounds, I don't forget that shit, man. I do not. And I can't, this, you is try? I write, yeah. this is why I write the shit that I write because it's, <laughs> you know, like I want to win a right like fantasy. I mean, yeah. this, this, this shit is still real. It's not fantasy, you know? Yeah. There's stuff going on. And how can I get these skills and be where I am now and not use this platform yeah. to do something, to yeah. try my own little way to change things? 
I would be derelict. I would be an absolute to all my friends and everybody that came in for that kept telling me, God, I bet that that's really what they want. Do something with that. You don't yeah, just yeah. like go around and then forget the people, man. I mean, like, no way I could do that. Yeah. So, so I am still deep down in my heart working class, although I know I'm, I'm as bourgeois as you can get. I know. I but this is all part of the fitting in, right? Like all of right. that, then that becomes a new thing, right? Like you know, before I, I taught my last class three, I teach one class a year every once in a while at Carnegie Mellon where I work. Mm-hmm. And I was stepping into a classroom. I fucking shit you not. And I got texts from people that three people in my hometown overdosed on heroin. People that I knew, like literally, like this is three years ago. Like I'm about to step into a classroom. And I was like, I told the kids, I'm like, I'm going to be off today because this is where I'm from. Right. Like it doesn't matter how far I get away from this stuff. Uh, like it's I'm never away from it. Like I'm never like it's it is it is always going to touch the people that I love and I'm never going to know when. Uh, and like, how the fuck do you like? You know, you laugh and you have a good time and, you know, you're like me, like you get a little bougie and you're like, well, I don't want, you know, I need this kind of beer. And then you're like, nah, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Not like, yeah. You know, it's really funny because you still go back to the Bronx, man. Although, you know, it's not this effect. I took my kids to the South Bronx once, rode them around where my street, the street yep. I live. And it was so gentrified. Yeah. And then I, I just was, did the same like, thing with my girlfriend. You know, it's like, it's like, dad, this isn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like, I took her to my hometown and drove around. Yeah, and this I was changed like, a lot. There's yeah. like no graffiti now. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing. There's no. It's clean. Yeah, you know what I mean. This kind of thing, and I'm going like, wow. But I said, you know, there's still the issues and problems. Then I find out that, like, streets away, the the houses are going for three hundred fifty thousand, which yeah. in New York is really relatively cheap. Now that those those houses are now because that was like maybe five years, eight years ago or maybe even 20 when, when we first got back to new york and we went you know yeah to the city to visit and i wanted to to uh, you know my wife supported me yeah let's go let's take a let's take a ride around your whole neighborhood so and i was like wow yeah. so now it's called the piano district <laughs> we i mean uh, my girlfriend just was uh, we were in cincinnati for my nephew's wedding and i was like let me show you my town and literally we'd be driving and i'm like you see that gated community that was just woods. You see that one story house that's been here for 40 years. And she was like, yeah. you can really start to see. I'm like, yeah, yeah. there's two Lovelands here. Like yeah. my yeah. people are townies and yeah. all this yeah. other shit. They've gated all the nice stuff off because they don't want us there. Yep. Yeah. It's still, it's still there. And yeah. And of course, you know, uh, the Bronx, uh, is, the, is, if not the poorest County, one of the poorest counties in all of New York state, the oh, Bronx. Really? Yeah. So even still, even though it's some parts of it gentrified, why not? The South Bronx is only five minutes from Manhattan. Yeah. Of course it would be gentrified, you know, and you have all these now urban pioneers. <laughs> I have to laugh, man, but it's really sad and it's yeah, very yeah. painful to hear this. But you know, damn, and of course, you know, they're pushing people out, you know, like yeah. you know, but but Puerto Ricans, we're stubborn, man. We're not you're not gonna move us out of this shit. We're gonna yeah. stay here, you know, right? So so uh the Puerto Rico, the joke is in Puerto Rico, the, the islands, it, the joke is that the Bronx is another Puerto Rican, uh, you know, part of Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I know, man, it's uh, it's tough. And so, yeah, it defines what I write. It defines who I am. Yeah. I cannot. And my, you know, I have visions of my mother still. I've written about this. My mother coming home with, with flecks of textile all over her and not time enough to clean herself, you know, 
yeah. to start preparing a meal. That is a very, very vivid, vivid image in my mind as I'm a, I'm a kid probably sitting in the, in the table, you know, because the only place I could really read and study was in the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> and she's there cooking, you know, for us yeah. with stuff in her hair, whatever, getting out from that factory, that sweatshop that she was from, you know, where she came from. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, it is one of the, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you and we obviously haven't gotten through everything, but like it, it, I think that you are like me in that sense that like it, it, every time you go to a new place, you don't fit in there either. So now there's another level of not belonging. And like, I went to Berkeley for graduate school. Like I ended up working at MIT. I ended up working at Carnegie Mellon. Like I've worked at some pretty nice places and everywhere I go, I'm like the dude with a cowboy hat and a weird accent. <laughs> yeah. And they make it clear, right? Yeah. They may say that as a joke or whatever, but they make it clear that you're not like us, you know, it, it, and maybe, and then they try to play around and say, well, how unique and wonderful, you yeah. know, that you, you do wear that, yeah. that cowboy hat and you have that, that cute accent. Yeah. Diversity you know I mean? takes it's on like, so many like, flavors. Like, I mean, <laughs> no, man. It's like, I don't know how many times when I was at, at Bastard, you know, some stupid asshole would sing, good to be in America. You know, this guy. Oh. <laughs> like, fuck you. Man. I mean, in fact, let me tell you, I went to a reunion five years later, whatever, and I had this guy that, that we always get in my, you know, and I'm telling you, fuck yourself, dude. You know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, he always like this. And he, at that reunion, he came to me and says, you know what, Jose, I guess he got woke. Yeah. And he said, all that time I used to make fun of you and joking, I was, was kidding, but I really feel, I really, really, I want to apologize to you. Five years after that, you know, he apologized to me. And, and I felt like, you know, whatever, man. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. you know, it's still in my mind, you know, you right. can't get it out of my mind all that time and shit that, that you make me feel not, not welcome, you know? And, yeah. or, or, you know, or I in high school, when I was accepted to VAST, some kid that applied to the school oh, said to me, the only reason you got in is because you're Puerto Rican. Yeah. This person did not know my grades. He didn't know anything about me. Right. And assumed automatically that that was it. Now, there might have been something in that, but I was a damn good student. You know, sure. which I was, by the way, in the same scholarship program he was in. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, that's the, that, that we've had to deal with that all the time. There's a wonderful book titled um, Assumed Incompetent. Mm -hmm. And I forget the, the writer. <laughs> I want to say Dardari is her last name. But, you know, and she mostly deals with women, yeah. Latinas mm -hmm. in the academy. And but it's I think it's true for for most uh people of color, BIPOC, you know, in the academy yep. that they always assume that somehow, eh. I had yeah, issues yeah. with my own, my own school, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into it, but because I want to forget the shit, but, but, uh, you know, then back of your mind is always, why? Yeah. I mean, come on, you know, and I can go the reasons why this is when I was going for promotion for full. Yeah. And, you know, there's always a couple of people there. That's what it takes. Yeah. To thank it. And, and, then, and all the things that we're seeing was just absurd. Yeah. So I had yeah. to reply in my own rhetorical way right. my wife often says <laughs> says Jose, you have a real like poisonous pen and i says i can yeah i, I have that ability yeah and i thought it you know it was a really a strong argument on my part i think you know why you know this is everything you're saying is, is ridiculous it's just absolutely not true or, or not even based on the yeah principles that we're supposed to be right. um i ran know. tenure committees i know exactly yeah i, I mean exactly what was, was happening and there's always this in the back of your mind. How can they win a minute? You know, I went to my chair and he said, oh, you, you should be a slam dunk. My chair said. Yeah. 
And then, the, you know, three people, it took three people because the rest of the people just were chicken shit. And they, they said, well, we don't know. And they kind of voted like, like you know, yeah. abstained. <laughs> you know, yeah. but the good news of that, you know, is that it went through the whole process and, and process, thankfully. My chair said yes. The dean said yes. They came before the dean, actually, some, they put a committee together. All three people in that committee said yes. The dean actually wrote a very sharp like rebuttal to them saying, I don't understand why. This is one <laughs> of the worst, quote unquote, one of the worst review, performance reviews for, for full professor I have ever in my 20 years or oh, 30 years or whatever. Well, that's good. You know what I mean? And then, of course, the provost and the, and the president. Fine. Sure. So basically, it was, it was these three people, you know. Yeah. It's the, it's the, I've told this story. Like when I went to work at MIT, I worked at technology review and I had a great boss. I went to work for him, Jason Pond. And he flat out told people, look, when we interview folks, I don't want to hear anybody say, well, they don't fit into the culture we have here. Cause that's some white people shit that yep. you're saying to keep people out that are different. He's like, my mandate to you all is I want the most diverse workforce because I don't believe any one person makes a great organization. It takes a lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds working totally. together to make something great. He's that's like, it. I set the culture and that's what the culture is. So everybody fits into it. And it was like, you know, it, at the time it was the first time I'd heard that articulated in, in that way. And I think I probably said it better than he said it, but like, yeah, cause yeah. I've now had years to <laughs> own that story, yeah. but it was one of those moments where I was okay. like, oh yeah, like that's exactly what you need to do because I don't Absolutely. know what was said in that. But again, I've sat in these committees and I know the bullshit things that people say. Right. And it usually is like, well, they're not collegial. And that just means, well, yeah. that, means oh, that is the word that yeah. is used so much. In fact, there's been papers not written about that. It seems that word pops up all the time yeah. among people, you know, BIPOC. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. It's like, it's really, you know, and I've been on the other, other committee having to fight this crap. It's so, crazy. You know, after a while, it's very exhausting. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted, I'm not going to put up another three years of this shit. No, I'm, I'm going. And um, the problem is, Brad, that really when people, don't, when it comes to racism, all right. It is systemic. Yeah, it really is. And what does that mean? People, they say, "Oh, come on, that's like that's like almost like conspiracy." It's not a conspiracy. It's just that it's no, it's baked into the function of the country, right? Yeah. And I'm saying it's 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 in the, it's DNA. Actually. Yeah, it's sort of so yeah. we have had all this history, and like so the past has nothing to do with the present, apparently, to some of these people, you know. <laughs> uh, and it's got like hundred percent to do with it. It is yeah. the present because of the past. Yeah. And so, you know, you have this system that works certain ways because of ideas that are entrenched in it. And even well-intentioned institutions like, you know, Hollywood industry, the film industry, which everybody on the right says, all oh, those damn leftists, you know, whatever. And then the system itself is racist. Yeah. Because, uh, and, and sexist, as Gina, uh, you know, Gina, what's her name? Um, I forget her name now. Um, she came out with this documentary. Uh, I think the title is, uh, well, this changes everything. Uh, Gina Davis. Gina Davis, right. Yeah. And I watched that documentary and I said, boy, this is exactly a system yeah. that tries, you know, they think they're woke. And then when you break the numbers down, you go, yeah. there aren't too many women in this industry <laughs> at all levels. Yeah. There aren't too many people of color. Why? Because, yeah. it, oh, they broke it down so beautifully with a, diagrams to show yeah. how it's just that's exactly it's, what happens also in academy. I, you know and i've had this discussion so many times with people and, and um it's so fascinating because it, the racism because look i'm a white dude in america right so like i'm i have been the least 
policed person in all like that just am right like so the ability to have somebody say hey you've done some fucked up thing like you have a choice right there is when you have a choice right you can either double down and defend it or go this is the empathy right like okay i may not understand this but i fucked up and i'm gonna listen and i'm gonna try to do better and we may not come to an agreement on that but like i'm not gonna deny your existence as a thing and say well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. So you must be wrong, right? Like, and white people are horrible at that shit. Like, oh my God, horrible. Yeah. It's white fragility, man. It's really, that's it really it is. is. But also there's no, there's not been a practice or a space or a demonstration of how to do it, right? Like, True. so I think that the fragility is, is a, is it's less, it, that fragility makes it seem like white people are fragile. It's like, no, white people in America haven't ever had to practice empathy all the time. And so we are bad at it. And uh-huh. Like I interviewed this woman, she was great. And she was like, I actually had every time I'm with my, she's like, I'm most afraid to call out my liberal friends because I lose them because they get mad and say, well, you know, I'm not that way. And she would be like, but you just did that thing. <laughs> right? Like, So how are we going to, and she was like, they don't know how to respond. And so they, they get do. really angry they, at right. her. You're absolutely right about that. And I, I don't know if you have read Robert DeAngelo's book. By fragility. I haven't. It's on my list of things to read. It is because everything you're saying exactly. She that's the whole yeah. book. The yeah. book is you know, and then she she goes to train. She's a person that trains people, but once yeah. she's training them, she has to teach you. Get, this is this is what you're doing right now is part of the problem, right? Yeah. You become you become defensive. Yeah, and and you're not going to learn anything if you put up a wall. And the whole she has a whole thing about white women. Oh yeah, white feminism is white, white liberal women. Yeah, she says you're the biggest problem. Isn't it? It's I've talked yeah. to people about this and I've said like and this. I know this is going to sound weird, but I've always said not always, but recently I'm like, I actually feel bad for white women because they were under the thumb of patriarchy for a long time. And so they fought. Not really understanding the racial stuff that was happening for America. And now where men are being given to white men are being given some space to recover and white women really aren't. And it really is like, it almost is like patriarchy coming back again. Not that it lets them off the hook, but it's like, oh my God, like even in this, they don't get space to fuck up. You know, I would agree 100% (laughs) with that. I think you're right about that too. I think they're really, the the burden of white people now falls on women. Yeah. It really, really is men because men still have the power. I mean, it really is. So we got to talk about white guys. Yeah. More and less about white white women. Although, you know, I know. That they also, what they have to do also be realize that sometimes they've always been the second on the totem pole. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. they, they need to know that space, even yeah. though as you've been pushed down by men, at the same time, they've been using you yeah. as, as part of their agenda, right? Yeah. So this is, this is, um, it's, it's complicated. complicated. Yeah, but that's the structural part of it. That's why I don't, when people are like, I don't, it's not structural. I'm like, I mean, have you ever talked to anybody? Because like everybody is struggling. And just because you are a minority in one place, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have your own blind spots as well. Like all of us have this work to do all the time. All the time when it and, comes to this issue in particular. Yeah, look, I, I always tell people I'm a, I'm a light-skinned Puerto yeah. Rican. I yeah. begin with that because I understand, even though I go and say my, I'm a person of color, I've always yeah. said that, I've never in my life said it white. Yeah. I am a person of color, Yeah. all right? And my DNA proves it. But, <laughs> but yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, so, but, but I, you know, I can pass. If, if sure. People tell me, oh, you look this, you look that. Yeah, yeah. I would never think that, you know. Colorism that. is a real thing, man. Like, yeah, it is. So you could, you know, if I were that kind of person, I would have used that shit all the time. And, and people, you know, and I know that I've gotten advantages. Sure. Maybe if I were darker, I would have, as some of my cousins are, yeah. I would have had a, a problem, a, you know, a bigger problem. Yeah. So, and, and we, and coming from a machista culture like I do, I mean, I, you know, the best thing that could have happened to me, Brad, was go to Vassar College. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and at that time, men were not wanted there. Yeah. Because this was in the, early, when they just had co become co-ed. Uh, yeah, it was, it was like right after, right? Like in the right first after, few years. Yeah. And I mean, I was like the third class or so. And, and I mean, these women did not want us there. Some of them, you know, yeah. they just felt that the, the legacy of the school has been just destroyed. Sure. And this is a woman's school. This is a feminist school. So I, being in that and midst of that, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned to shut up and listen to women. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that I learned, uh, you know, my culture was not thriving in that respect. I mean, let's face it, you know, Puerto Rican culture is very machista. Yeah. Latin American culture is machista. I mean, I would so, say the Appalachian is as well. Like, you know, again, yeah, it's like. It's patriarchal everywhere, but yeah. Yeah, it's you know, I come from a place where it's like women stayed home. They didn't work like they were like there were roles. And like I my girlfriend in college actually was a woman studies minor. And so I started taking classes because she was talking about this shit that I didn't understand. And I've told people like other than like finding Malcolm X and I have all of his books and writing back there. And I had his speeches for a long time, too, from like the Audubon. Um, and, and, and getting the woman studies degree changed. It still took a while for it to fucking click. Yeah. But yeah, cause I, it's one thing up here, but then yeah. in practice, right? Yeah. And it, you know, I practice. had my own, I had my own damages, my own stuff that I had to work through, but yeah. those yeah. seeds were there and that I'm thankful every day for that. Right. Right. Yeah. I agree. And I, and I really learned a lot Yeah, you know, for about, and so, and my wife, you know, you know, um, is a feminist in her own right. Yeah. So, um, and I'm glad I, I married someone like that. Yeah. Who, um, who keeps me, you know, thinking. Yeah. It, that's, that's a really great way to like, it's, you know, uh, my girlfriend is, you know, she's a strong woman who mm -hmm. is, you know, like she, you're not going to tell her what to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, often my wife tells me what to do. Yeah. So, <laughs> And, and so all, I said, yes, I'll do that because you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like it yeah. is a, a you get that and you're like, oh, yeah, no, this is a good partnership where like I can have an all yeah. day or be wrong. And like yeah. somebody's there to be like, <laughs> like, yeah, get yeah. your ass back yeah. on the road. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 why we've been married for 34 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, listen, yeah. this has been uh, fantastic. You are uh, you're just great. Like I, we could do this, I think, for hours and hours and hours. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really enjoy this because uh, this is really, I, I think we have a lot of commonalities, Brad. I really do. Um, 100%. Maybe that's why we, we, we clicked. Um, and it's been a wonderful conversation. I don't feel like I'm really being interviewed. It's just like a conversation. Yeah. That's and, what we do here. Because uh, on you, that's you. Because the end of the day, like the, particularly the kinds of stuff that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. All comes from the lens of your experience. And, and right. those, and those books make more sense when you, I think, when you know the author, when you see the thing and you're like, oh, this is, this is the lens, mm -hmm. right? This is the mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. that it's coming through. And those right. stories then become richer and deeper and more, not more meaningful, but like they just have that thing of like, oh yeah, because 
I don't need to be Puerto Rican to understand not belonging to, to fitting into two different places. Like I left the poor place where my friends called me the professor from the time I was a kid. And that was not a compliment. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, to be smart where we come from is not sometimes, uh, you know, I got my really. ass kicked every day in my neighborhood. <laughs> every day. I became a really good fighter, but like that's fucked up. I know. Well, you learn very quickly, man, to fight back. And this first. Is, I taught my kids the same thing, man. I said, don't you ever, I don't want to hear that you started fights, but if, I'd be very upset if somebody is fighting and you don't fight back. You yeah. better fight back because that's how you deal with bullies. Where I came from, and I still, I think it holds. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like it, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and this is a crazy way to end a literary podcast, but I told people like <laughs> where I'm from, if somebody comes up to me and he's like, do you want to fight? My response is to punch you in the face because you just started the fight. I'm not waiting for you yeah, to hit yeah. me like that right. is because right. if I did, you'd lose like that's in, you know, you get your ass kicked. And I know <laughs> and it's the last thing you want to do is get your ass kicked all the time because right. because bullies, I told my kids, I really, you know, you put up to them, they're bullies. They, they want you to be weak and whatever. If you fight back, they will never bother you ever, ever. And ever. it's so, yeah. and it also was a lesson as I've gotten older and gone into therapy. One, my therapist was like, well, that was trauma. And I'm like, I recognize that now, <laughs> you know, getting your ass kicked yeah. on a daily basis. Well, yeah. Not fun. But also that the importance of manhood is not is not the fight. It's the defending people who can't. Like, that's the thing you do, right? Like that's, you stand up for that and not right. because your ego is hurt or not because like you feel like your authority is challenged. Like those are different things. Right. And, uh, it, you know, it took those ass kickings to, for in some therapy to go, oh shit, like, yeah. okay, I sort of get this now. And I get yeah, why yeah, 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 so yeah. many of the people that I know didn't get out of that. Yeah, well, I, I tell you that you're right. I think uh, authors really write what they know. <laughs> and with experience and that's certainly for me and even the book that the novella that i'm going to be working on um i'm working on now yeah is about roberto clemente you know baseball icon i live in pittsburgh yeah and everybody loves him as a baseball player but i really want to write about him as as a, a man and more particularly as a afro puerto rican man yeah and so i am i i've been searching with issues of, of race and what, is, what you know like for me in my identity what 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 does that mean what does race yeah. mean for a caribbean puerto rican person and that's what i want to explore in that book through him that's interesting are you going to come down here to the clemente museum i i this is i would love to because i'm doing research now so i really would like to do everything that has to do with clemente so I'm it is it's five minutes from my house and i'm a baseball guy so if you come okay. down to pittsburgh i will definitely call call you yeah, and sure. we're going to go to that museum together okay. because uh, right. at literally it's you know within walking distance to my house. Yeah, I'm going to definitely look into it and see when I can I can do that. Certainly when the weather's better and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? Well, okay. this has been fantastic. You were wonderful. And uh, I really, I hope that we get to do this again because uh, I hope so great. too. I really enjoyed this. I really, I really did. All right. So thank you so much for having me on, on it. Well, there you have it. That was J.L. Torres, whose book Migrations came out this past June. He's great, man. And Any, anytime you can end talking about baseball, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, if you know me at all, you know that is the way to my heart. Uh, and he's just so great. Like, it is nice. You know, I have a bunch of different people on the show, and I try very hard to make the guest list as diverse as possible. Right. Like uh, geographic publishing house background, 
all of that stuff, right? Because I'm just interested in people, and and I think that's important. Uh, and it's always nice to talk to somebody whose background is very similar to mine, right? And that the that Venn diagram, which I talk about here on the program all the time, uh, when the parts of the Venn diagram that hit are like really important to each of us. And so, honestly, I cut so much out of this interview, and like. What you didn't hear during the commercial break was an amazing part of the conversation as well. Like, I just, I loved it so much. I hope you did as well. Before we get out of here, I'm going to tell you about those reminders again that I always ask you about. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review either on Apple Podcasts or over at the Writer's Jam Facebook page and tell your friends about us. Just one or two. Bug the shit out of them. Do it for me. That will do a world of good for the program. While you're at it, don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including our flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Don't forget the video podcasts come out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. Those are out Mondays and Fridays. You can also catch the audio version right here on this channel. And the jam is out on Wednesdays. So the best way not to miss anything Get your ass subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.